from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Tim Perry on January 6, 2014. Tim is a videographer who co-produced a documentary about Abdu'l-Baha's visit to America in 1912. Abdu'l-Baha is the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. The video is called Luminous Journey, Abdu'l-Baha in America 1912, and can be found at luminousjourney.org. I started the interview by asking Tim where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? When I was young, my my parents uh, decided to get a divorce, and it was, interestingly, it was sort of based on, it had some origins in religious disunity. So at a very young age, I got a, uh, my parents divorced, and my mother uh, moved to Wyoming, and my dad stayed in the, the Bay Area, um, California, around San Francisco and Oakland. Um, I, I was born in San Diego, however, to get back to the point. And um, my grade school years were in Wyoming. My middle school years, junior high, I was in Colorado, older Colorado. And um, my high school years were in Arizona, Lake Havasu City, Arizona. It was such a weird transition, leaving sort of junior high and then going to high school. And the family makes this move, and suddenly we're just like in a kind of lunar landscape. And actually, it was in 1969, they were getting ready to land on the moon, and uh, it was like so strange to watch them walking on the moon and then to look out the window and to see kind of this barren desert landscape. And then uh, after after high school in Lake Havasu City, and we, uh, we moved back to kind of the family homestead. My mother grew up, which was in the Southern California area. And I went to community college and got some work out there, and, and mm-hmm. then I began my career. Southern California, so it was 20 years there. So do you mind telling me what was the source of the religious discord between your parents? The source of the religious discord between my parents was really more probably my mother and then my father's entire family. My father's family were was an immigrant family from uh, the Azores off of the coast of Portugal, and so very devout Catholic multi-generations of of Catholicism. In the family, um, both my grandparents immigrated to the United States, and my dad, aunts, and uncles were um, were born in in America, and then uh, they all moved to the West Coast from the Rhode Island area, and uh, they where there was a large burgeoning Portuguese-speaking population. And so they were heavy in, in Catholicism. And my mother, on the other hand, who grew up from a, a Kansas family, which then moved to California, very sort of Protestant Christian upbringing, uh, where the grandparents were concerned on her side. And and she adopted her her favorite aunt's religion, which was Christian science. And so it wasn't just Christianity. It wasn't just a Protestant Christianity. It was Christian science. 
I tended to be sort of balanced between both. Once they separated, I, I tended to be balanced between both religions. But I, I guess what happened is just, you know, just kind of, because the religion is almost interwoven into the, your, your very family fabric as, as a Catholic from, the, you know, from Europe, it was really hard to, for them to be able to accept my mother. And my mother's family was kind of Irish, Scottish, what are you looking at, Mac kind of, <laughs> those kind of people. And so it didn't last very long, long enough for my brother and I to be born and partially raised. And how old were you, Tim, when your parents separated? Um, I think it was around five or six, something like that, about four, mm-hmm. four maybe. And it seemed like in your description that you moved quite a bit. And why was that? Well, my dad was concerned that we'd always kind of return to California, and they he stayed in the same place in the San Jose area. But my mom, in you know, starting off in Wyoming, she met a man who would later become my stepfather, who was an incredible, you know, wonderful, wonderful man, helped raise us, uh, my brother and I. He was involved in road construction, highway construction, which was taking place throughout the state of Wyoming. So we moved all over Wyoming and then decided it was time for health reasons to get out of that. And, and uh, I'm not sure why Boulder don't know. I guess I was still pretty young. And then uh, Arizona was because they they decided after being in Boulder, they heard about you know these really cheap plots of land we were renting, basically in Colorado, and they heard about cheap land in uh, Arizona. And so they took a free flight out, got wined and dined in Lake Havasu City by the Acela Corporation that was selling land and developing this this region. And uh, we decided to buy some land and move us out there. And so we did. And I watched them build the, the London Bridge, which was transplanted from England. And then the blocks were, and then it was built and then faced. And it was the London Bridge. Hmm. So it was kind of a tourist thing. And it was a strange, strange transition. Now, you had mentioned that what your transition to high school, that was, I don't know if you described it as difficult or... Yeah, it was. Yeah, the, the transition from the, the Colorado to Arizona, both physically, you know, leaving my friends again, right. and then uh, winding up in Arizona, making new friends. And, and the, the, the kind of the cool thing there was that everyone else was transplanted as well. You know, no one was really happy about <laughs> about being out in the desert now from Wisconsin or <laughs> wherever their parents moved them from. You could commiserate. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't that bad. So what happened after high school? After high school, my friends went off to college, and um, my parents and I never talked about college the entire time. You know, it was like it wasn't even part of our vocabulary where my friends, it was natural for their families to be doing that. And it was for economic reasons. You know, at this point, my, I think my, my dad and mom they had a small uh, janitorial supply business. And then they did a janitorial service at night, office buildings and restaurants and stuff like that. So their economic circumstances really didn't make them feel that they could probably send myself and my brother through college. So we just really didn't talk about it. And I wasn't thinking about it. I was trying to get through high school. And so my friends all took off, and I stayed in Lake Havasu and um, worked at a gas station, pumped gas, and 
had a lot of time to think about stuff, and, and that's where I sort of began thinking about spiritual truths and trying to figure out the universe and sort for you know the hidden meaning in things and the mysterious mysterious. I don't know. I just had time to contemplate that stuff. So, where did your thinking and searching take you? You know, it sort of put like a mentor in my path when I started to become curious. Because literally, you can sit there in the middle of the desert and stare up and gaze at the stars. And and because there wasn't really a lot of development yet, and it was very, very vast universe. And really, if, if you had any artistic bones in your body, you couldn't help but ponder the the vastness of the universe. Fortune seemed to place a, a mentor in front of me who was, to me, he was like this young, wise man who had a bit of local celebrity status. He, he uh, was a, a DJ on our local radio station who had, who had quit, and that was sort of like an angry rebel sage kind of dude. And and so I would hang out and listen to what he was talking about or what he was into, and and he was into the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he was into Universal Cycles, and you know, just stuff that was just very mysterious, you know, astral projection, theosophy, that world religion. And so I started looking at all that stuff, looking into it. Just started getting stacks of books and reading stuff and chaptering it and putting piece of paper bookmarking where I thought there was a little bit of truth here and a little bit of truth there and started formulating my own thing. I started believing in stuff like reincarnation. I studied other religions a bit. Took this huge stack one day. I took this huge stack of books to my my friend's house and I wanted to share with her what was going on in my life. I hadn't seen her for a while. I'd been actually taken sort of a spiritual road trip out from Arizona to California and Washington State so I came to her house, and her mother was a Baha'i. I didn't know if the daughter and, and the, the son were Baha'is, but um, the mother was a Baha'i, and so I brought this stack of books in. My friend wasn't there, but mom was there, and so I started chatting with her and sharing what was going on in my life. And she said, well, you know, you need to add the Baha'i faith to your investigation and check it out. And, and so we started talking, and she said that, Interestingly, that at, when she was around my age, that she was very inquisitive as well, and that um, she had gone on her own sort of path of searching for answers, spiritual truths, whatever. She said that what was interesting was that the Baha'i faith seemed to incorporate all those things that she was, you know, very interested in, and and, um, and it answered her questions for her in ways that made the most sense to her. So that piqued my interest, and I got some books, so I started reading, and, and uh, a few weeks later, I said, well, you know, I, I want to be a Baha'i. I, like, I believe in this. That was the significant thing about Lake Havasu City, Arizona. So, Tim, how is it that, you know, you had this collection of books, and you were doing your search, and and this woman mentions the Baha'i faith. What was it about the Baha'i faith that sort of short-circuited things to you almost wanting to be a Baha'i immediately? Well, I think when... I was at a time in my life when I was... You know, this, this kind of this process of believing in something higher than yourself and wanting to find answers that made sense to your soul 
you know, at that, that time of my life, um, you know, I was pretty ready to sort of line up with any kind of major philosophy that, that seemed to to carry answers that, that, that I felt were truthful and, and that were, you know, something I wanted to adopt in my life. Coming from a Christian background and also, you know, having spent time in, at, uh, at my father's churches and watching Mass and the ceremony, and, you know, when I was young, it was a little bit spooky to me and, and kind of scary. My, I'd go into my, my grandma's, grandma and grandpa's bedroom there in, in Oakland. Uh, remember, they're the immigrant Portuguese. And she had an altar in her bedroom, which is very common, you know, for the whole culture to have altars with burning candles and incense and little statues. And it really kind of gave me, you know, it scared me as a kid. I didn't understand it, and it was kind of musty and kind of scary. And so the churches, you know, my dad sang in the choir at, at, at uh, in San Jose at a city church, and the church was called the Church of the Five Wounds. And that kind of scared me because inside was a major diorama, life-size diorama of Christ and and sort of the what he went through at, in, in Jerusalem. And as a, as a young, um, impressionable, impressionable person, that really frightened me. So I was looking for answers as I began to look at, at this thing, this Baha'i faith. I was looking for things that answered some of my Christian question. Because, you know, heaven and hell, the good, evil, the devil, sin, all these all these kind of the, the scary things. And I, I was very, you know, that was I was very impressionable about that as, as a child. And so I guess I had formulated in my soul, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but I formulated some kind of spiritual formula that that I don't know what it is I'm looking for, but I will recognize it when I see it. And I don't even know if that was conscious. But um, And as I, I began looking, especially into some of the Christian questions that I might have, um, I, I found that it was, you know, it was very satisfying to me, and it answered my questions rather quickly. And that was going to be a criteria, because, you know, I really needed to be part of a religion that was part of God. The one God that I think everybody is is worshiping. They have different names for them and different concepts of what everybody else's religious practice is. So, a couple of questions that you had were in the area of heaven and hell, good and evil. What were the answers that you got through the Baha'i faith that seemed to satisfy you? Well, I think I was looking for the kinder, gentler God that. Um, Somewhere deep inside me said that God is everything. God is unknowable. You know, you know. I hear a lot of good things. You know, I'd like to I'd like to know more about the good the good side of Him. And I really got an impression when I was reading about the Baha'i Faith, reading the writings of Baha'u'llah, who's the Baha'i, the central Baha'i messenger, manifestation prophet. When I was reading his writing that he had written down. The positive approach to God was really um, incredibly refreshing. It was like 180 degrees from where I was, or from pretty much most of the material that I could get as I was investigating from all these different areas. Generally, there were a lot of holes that that kept things not making sense. And so as I read the Baha'i stuff, 
on the writings there, um, the, the hole started to fill up and the, and the questions started to become answered. And, and this overwhelming sense of scope of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and all those myriad of other attributes which aren't the judgmental, you know, a God of retribution and fire and brimstone. There was this myriad ocean of a loving God, and that's what I was looking for. You know, I, I needed, I believed that, and so that that uh, that's what the Baha'i information was telling. So you mentioned holes in and the Baha'i faith filling those holes. Could you be specific in which, in in what areas these holes existed, and how the Baha'i faith filled those holes? I love history, and so there are things, and I love religious history, and you know, I could watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, a bazillion times, and, and many of the biblical movies, I love the, just the, uh, kind of the shock and awe of God uh, back in those days, according to the stories. But they, there were, there was some incongruity, there was some, there were some things that I said, well, this is really, you know, this is really amazing, but how is it contemporary, or how, is it, how does it fit human beings now? You know, we are a different human being, even in my generation, you know, my, my years here on the planet. The evolution that I see, the social evolution of humankind, is, just blows my mind. And so I, there was these questions about some of the, the, early, the early scriptures, not just from Christianity or Judaism or, you know, Buddhism, you know, but it was like, you know, how do they answer the questions that we need to have answered today? Are they are they really talking about living as a, a global people on the planet? Because that's where we're going. You know, that's that's the state of human evolution, and you can't you, know, you can't go against that tide. It's it's going to be fruitless. And so I I, st- I was looking for things, and and now of course having I don't know forty some years as a Baha'i behind me in perspective, you know, I can speak to this with more clarity than I could at the time, you know, but my, just the, the general sense was that there were, there were questions like, you know, I, re- reincarnation made sense to me, for example. It explained a lot, you know, why do people suffer? And, you know, why are some lives cut short? You know, is that just? And, and all these kinds of things. When I started reading about the concept of Reincarnation, as from a Baha'i perspective, it, it, it was a little hard for me to swallow, but it, it filled a, a hole that sort of logically made sense to me in it. The idea that, that we as spirits or souls, you know, really don't return after we, after we leave the earthly plane, we don't really return. Of course, and that's, you know, the, the whole thing of being a, an eternal spirit or an eternal being, you know, that was very much part of the Baha'i writings and so there, you know, it dovetails with my early beliefs of, you know, through Christianity that we would go to heaven or return to God, and yet there were some some other things that, that just were lacking. So. so you're saying that the Baha'i faith sort of reinterpreted reincarnation not so much from the point of view of progressing through physical planes of existence here on earth, but rather through spiritual progressions 
that the Baha'i teaching says that we only live on this earthly plane in one in one life span, and that from there right. on out we live at different spiritual levels as we progress as a as a spiritual being. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that and that's it made a certain sense to me, and it was it also sort of tested the idea of. You know, I mean, it, once you commit to something and say, I believe that that's true, then it's interesting how um, circumstances tend to want to test that belief. And so I I was, you know, 85, 90%, 100% good with a lot of the, the concepts and the teachings of the faith. They just made, there was a certain, there was a beautiful spiritual sense that uh, these writings made to me, and there was also a very logical sense that these writings made to me as as well. So a certain even religious logic. So, okay. So reincarnation, you know, as, as that one example is, um, ultimately it, it made a lot of sense when, when you started looking at the idea of the concepts of life after death or, or why are we on our planet, the, the meaning of life, things like that. And, and, and the, the Baha'i writings are really rich in, uh, answering questions like that and, and sort of giving us a set of guidelines to sort of to work with this new information. Right. And you mentioned also the concept of a forgiving, loving God and how that was juxtaposed to the concept of heaven and hell. And maybe you could explain what is the Baha'i point of view in regards to this concept of heaven and hell. As I understand it from what I read, um, that we are eternal beings, according to according to what Baha'u'llah had wrote. He paints pretty, a very sort of optimistic, positive look at life after death, after death here, which pivots around the main idea that we are eternal creations of God, and that we will be ever advancing toward God throughout eternity, and that this is our first sort of physical plane of existence, and beyond that are worlds incomprehensible and spiritual in nature, again, sort of this comprehensible concepts, but, um, and that uh, in these worlds we will continue to advance towards our Creator, who is unknowable, and that the concept of heaven, for example, is more aligned with the idea of state of being at the time of your death. In Islam, they called it paradise. It'll be with Allah in paradise. May we eat lamb in paradise. Where within the Baha'i faith, it also uses the term like the kingdom of glory, the Abha kingdom, Christianity. Heaven. So here we have this, this spiritual realm that we go to once we have passed away, and that it's an eternal thing. And that I think that the idea of hell becomes more like the concept of the remorse that one feels in one's very being after departing when you perhaps think of the possibilities or the, or the missed opportunities you had to do something that might have uh, made you feel a little closer to God after you've, you've separated from the mortal coil, so to speak. 
So it's more of a concept than it is a, a, a physical location. And that God is merciful and forgiving, and He is full of grace. He is, uh, bestows grace upon us, and He is all loving, and so we shouldn't fear passing on to the next worlds of existence. So, Tim, what direction did your life go in after you became a Baha'i? Well, it went into uh, a real positive direction. It was uh, a time of uh, excitement and learning, uh, thinking about the world from a different perspective, a mental perspective, uh, seeing it sort of with new eyes in a way. Uh, we were, you know, moving into the age of, of hopefully someday, you know, soon world peace and that society and civilization will continue to advance. So after I became a Baha'i, I uh, got a, a book or two, and, and uh, shortly there, thereafter, my family moved uh, to California. I took my book and I read it started praying, and where we moved to in California was kind of remote, and there were no other Baha'is in our area. Um, but I found out that in the county where we were living, which is um, down by Los Angeles, in that county there was a, a, a Baha'i community. And so I had never been around it more than one other Baha'i, and I knew that every every 19 days that the community would come together and have a, a community meeting that they called the feast. And so I, I looked up the high faith in that area and got a phone number and got directions to where the, the home, the apartment where the feast was going to be held. And, uh, and I went there and I met my first, very first Baha'is. Sort of, it was so strange. I walked in the room and I, and I felt as though I had known them all my life. And it was, that was really weird and very, and very, uh, very real and tangible. From then, I started learning about kind of Baha'i culture, what it, sort of the institutional structure of the faith. I, I started started to see the Baha'i faith in it in more of a global perspective. You know, before it was sort of a philosophical idea to me, and a and a spiritual, or, you know, my relationship to God kind of idea. But now I was seeing it in a in a, a community structure, and and this was in the this was in the early seventies. I got involved with Baha'i stuff all around the Los Angeles area and did various things. And in the meantime, I found that I, I was you know, starting a career in, in media production. And so I started, when I could, doing things for the Baha'is, using my what I was learning as a, as a video producer and director, and, and then moved to various other communities and started to, you know, served in the institutional settings uh, from time to time. I stayed with it and watched the, the evolution of this new religion. You know, it's very, very exciting to see something actually at a, at a very rapid, almost like time-lapse photography. You know, if, you, if you watch time-lapse and you watch a, a flower, you know, you see a stem and, and a, a leaf and then suddenly a little a little sprout thing starts to bud out, a little bud starts pushing out the side of the stem, and, and the next thing you know, it's starting to open up and flower. Well, for me, I was, in my 40 years, I have, it's been kind of like watching Thomas. I've been watching this unfoldment of this, of a new religion that's finding its way, that's 
that's sharing these concepts, and uh, and I've tried to be involved when I can with that process. And, and in the and at times have have been witness to some pretty amazing events, and you know, tried to document some of them as well. Can you describe some of those events? Like one of the most amazing things, and I I think back on it, and I can only think of this as as it was the idea of the grace of God that He bestowed this opportunity on on me because I I don't feel worthy of of what it turned out to be. But in, in uh, around 2000, we, they had finished this major construction project on the High World Center in in Haifa, Israel, and they had completed a set of 19 terraces and these beautiful administrative offices um, on Mount Carmel, and they were going to have this dedication for it. And when, when I first heard about, you know, the, the project years before, and and then, you know, I kept up with all of the news bits that were coming out of the Holy Land to, to hear, like, well, they've excavated another terrace, and they've, they've moved these giant boulders, and it took them three days, and, you know, I just sort of bored with all that. I just, in my heart, I had this heart's desire to to go there and to look and to see the terraces. Well, I had an opportunity to uh, to serve with the, the high media services. They, they asked me if I wouldn't mind coming with them as one of their videographers and going and shooting uh, the dedication ceremonies for the terraces opening and interview the, the American contingent of participants, which uh, every country sent 19 representatives from their nation to be part of the ceremony. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience to to see the representation from all the countries in the world, people that were from all walks of life, all ethnic backgrounds, you know, 19 from each country. So you could get a really good cross-section of people if you wanted to. And and truly there was, and these people gathering in Israel, you know, and and, and it was very biblical, quite honestly. You know, some of the, you know, what I felt I was witnessing you know, as far as the, the coming together of all humankind in peace, you know, and, and that was pretty amazing. So I was able to serve as a as a and to shoot amazing things and to witness um, moments there, truly once in a lifetime. So, Tim, how did you get into videography in the first place? I, I had an aptitude for doing artistic type stuff, and I didn't really see myself as an artist as much as I just like to do this stuff. And I started getting involved in theater in high school, and I really liked the technical theater aspect of it. I liked the acting, but I liked the technical aspect as well. So I found... Um, pleasure in, in building sets and designing stuff, and, and uh, that led me to, uh, to college where I, I did more theater in college, and that got me a job working at a, as a stage technician at an amphitheater um, outside of Los Angeles. It was while I was working there that a company, a production company, came in, and they had these laser lights, you know, which was pretty new, and this was like mid-70s now. It was a pretty new concept, you know, for, a beam of light and you know do little patterns and I mean now we take that for granted but at the time it was like kind of mind blowing and then they also had banks of slide projectors and they, and they had the, and they and so what we had was a sound and light rock and roll kind of 
event type show that they would do every night. And I, I watched them do this and I got very excited about their use of the technology and computers and all this stuff, which was a very new idea. And I asked them for a job. And so I got, uh, I got hired on as a, as a gopher for their company. And eventually I became a production assistant and I found I had an aptitude for kind of designing these multiple slide projector type shows um, for corporations. And I think the, the very first thing that I ever worked on with, uh, with uh, they let us design a show for pyrotechnics corporation uh, that the, you know, did these big fireworks shows. And so we got to use slides of fireworks and stuff. And I found I, I sort of took the lead on the design idea. So I kept doing design for these types of events, and eventually they would start incorporating video or film footage and became or live action on the stage and dancers. became very involved and very unique, but not real sellable in most of the production world. And, and eventually that sort of led to learning more about video and becoming a director and directing live action and shooting live action. And that's how I got involved in, in the video. And, and then the technology and the entire industry that I had been a part of truly went by the way of the dinosaur. It, it just sort of disappeared. It, it was no longer a viable business. Video monitors, video walls, in shot and video computer graphics in the earliest forms were starting to come out and taking the place of, of that, that other basic industry that was, was used for all manner of things. And then I just, you know, kept shooting and that's how I so I learned how to do video. And and you stayed with the technology as it advanced? I did. And I, I still have to stay with the technology, you know, because it doesn't stop. You know, there's like, I keep, I, I get so tired when I, when I, sometimes when I watch television commercials because they have the latest, technology they use they're doing the latest things and i know sometimes how many hours human hours it takes to do what you just saw that was in two seconds and i get exhausted and and i know the amount of learning then the the actual work once you know to use the software the amount of work it takes to do that you still have to take keep up with it but i was i guess i was very lucky i felt pretty blessed because i you know i seemed to always get really good opportunities you know, as a freelancer, I would get good jobs. And then when I would go on staff, we, you know, would do very interesting stuff with production companies that I'd be on staff with. And in 92, after finishing a big project for the Baha'is, I, I met a woman on that project and, and uh, decided I was going to marry her. And she, this was Anne, my wife, Anne, and she had already made a commitment to go to UTD in Dallas. She'd been living in Chicago. And so she was moving to Dallas, and if I was going to marry her, I was going to have to move to Dallas, too. And I thought I wouldn't have any problems because I'd heard, and I had recommendations from my Texas friends in the production industry, that it wouldn't be a problem finding a job. And I had a pretty good reel, I thought anyway, in the corporate world and a little bit of entertainment. And so I, I came out, and everyone was real impressed, but I, I didn't get a job. And so... I had a lot of free time, and I, I started working with a friend who invited me to his small ad agency, and I started doing graphics. And that forced me to get hands-on with software and to actually 
you know, learn Photoshop. Before, I would just hire people that knew that stuff. That was that was new technology. When I got to Texas, I, I found that I sort of had to start over, and which was really good because that forced me to learn. That kept me current, um, and it put me in a, in, a, in a learning frame of mind and, and using the part of my brain that I don't normally use when I'm being creative. Are you still in Texas? Still in Texas, yes. North Texas, the mm-hmm. Dallas, Texas area. Mm-hmm. Dallas-Fort Worth, I should say. And what are you doing now? Well, I'm still in media production and mm-hmm. still trying to earn a living. Mm-hmm. Don't think I'll retire. And fortunately, um, this is an industry when one can work to a ripe old age, so to speak. So my wife and I recently finished a, a feature-length documentary the first one we've ever done, and um, it's on a, a subject, a Baha'i subject, about the uh, the travels of Abdul Baha, who is Baha'u'llah's son, the eldest son. Uh, so the travels of Abdul Baha in 1912 through the United States and, and Canada. So we um, we spent about three years working on that, and so now I'm I'm just uh, keeping busy with all the aspects of a finished documentary that's now on DVD and, and what that entails. And it's, it's all been a learning curve for us. Um, we need nothing when we, you know, beyond, hey, let's, let's make a documentary. So, but that's, that's what I'm doing these days. So, Tim, is that documentary on Abdu'l-Bahá completed? It is. We finished it in probably July of 2013. This version, which is two and a half hours long, had so much information that its its real ideal spot would be in a DVD format um, so that people could then sort of ingest the information of his journey, which was, a, is, was an eight-month journey, and one could spend 10 hours documenting all the things that happened and still leave out stories. And so we managed to squeeze it down to two and a half hours, and it still, you know, was not a good theatrical length. And so we put it in a DVD form, um, and it's now available. And so, and then um, we first started with standard def DVD, and we wanted to make sure that the quality was, you know, it was it was good. So they do they put it on what was called a DVD nine, and you know, this is just stuff we we had to learn. And I guess that's kind of mirrors or is, is par for the course of. Of, uh, kind of how my career has has gone as well. You just kind of say, well, let's let's try it, and we sort of sort it out, and and then we finally released the DVD as a Blu-ray. And we've had some uh, you know private screenings um, here and there, some focus testing, and and uh, we hope to take it and make a a more concise version that would be of a suitable length for film festivals. And, so we're thinking about that next. And what's the title of the documentary, and where can people find it? It's called Luminous Journey, Abdu'l-Bahá in America, 1912. And Luminous Journey is available through 9starmedia.com. That's the number 9, and then starmedia.com. And it's it's kind of a, a Baha'i-inspired website. It's kind of like iTunes for Baha'i-inspired music. It's a fun site to go visit. Uh, lots of music. Um, you can sample. You can download. Um, but you can order the DVD there. And uh, through the Baha'i distribution 
channels as well, typical channels, some uh, local bookstores and some communities, and and you can find out information about that as well on our website, which is luminousjourney.org. That will take you to a place where you can find links to other information about about the film, and about the Baha'i faith, and about Dr. Bond's journey, and the, the centenary of his visit, which was in uh, 2012. And uh, it's just a good source for that kind of thing. That's luminousjourney.org. Well, Tim, I want to thank you so much for telling your story and sharing it with us. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for asking. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim Perry a videographer who co-produced a documentary about Abdu'l-Bahá's visit to America in 1912. Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of Baha'u'lláh, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. The video is called Luminous Journey, Abdu'l-Bahá in America 1912, and can be found at luminousjourney.org. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
comes with ease I'll never know what it's like to wear a crown Have my people bow to me In the end your deeds are sending gorgeous ways you down Forget the world and let it be Thy love, 
the flame which has ignited in the tree of thy mercy.
to thy abode, where I will behold the source of the light that you shine when it's cold. But how will I know when it is time, and how do I grow if the sun don't shine? But when Baha'u'llah's words are spoken, I forget about my wings that are broken, and I can fly into the sky, no fear, no pain, with my hands held high, cause this is my air, this is my prayer, this is what I breathe in, this is what I believe, I wanna guide the wayward, lead the hapless, awaken the heedless, and free the captives, my air, this is my prayer, this is what I breathe in, this is what I believe, I wanna guide the wayward, lead the hapless, awaken the heedless, and free the captives, yeah. Give me, give me wings So I, so I can soar So I can soar And get closer to you Yeah. Give me, give me
been too grand pardon and if thou hast no mercy upon me who is capable of showing compassion glory be unto thee thou didst create me when i was on existent when i was non existent glory be unto thee This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.